Welcome to Music 316 for Wednesday, December 2nd, 2009. Today we're starting our sixth CD on religious and regional music of South Asia. And there's good news here because I just found out that the library decided to use the same example numbers as we have in our class handouts for this CD. So it won't be the kind of detective work that you had studying for the midterm, trying to figure out how the library numbers matched or mismatched with our numbers. There's a tremendous amount of musical and cultural variety in the Indian subcontinent. I'm having trouble with my discs today, aren't I? For our first four examples on CD number six, we're going to look at and hear music from four very different regions of South Asia and the subcontinent. You remember that Indian writers long ago talked about the differences between the Margi music of the road that existed in the cities and traveled via road networks all through the subcontinent, and that included mainly the classical music of India. And they differentiated that music from deshi, or music of places or regions within South Asia. Oh. Let's start with the place up in the far northeastern corner of India, a corner where India meets Tibet to the north and Burma or Myanmar to the east. That is a zone of interface between the Himalaya mountains, which are hidden in the background in the, in the clouds up here, the highest mountains in the world, um, and the inner and north Asian areas lying to the north of the Himalayas, and over to the east in that direction, the uh, countries of Southeast Asia. This is a very different area from other parts of India, and for that matter, life here is very different from the cities of India. You see the riders on horseback here, people living in these low rolling foothills below the high mountains. Here at a festival in Northeast India, you find people of many different ethnic groups coming together to celebrate a yearly festival. You see people dressed very differently from each other. Look at the bagpipes. And yes, those are Scottish bagpipes. You might not expect to find Scottish music here in this remote corner of India, but actually um, people from this area have served in the British Army 
for a couple of hundred years now, and some of them have come back to South Asia playing bagpipes, music that they learned in the British Army. In fact, the National Tournament of Scottish Bagpipe Military Bands, the only really different military bands in the Western world from the Turkish military bands that spread, spread throughout Europe a couple hundred years ago, the Scottish Bagpipe Bands have their own special festival of music in Scotland every year. And always some of the top bands in that competition are bands from India and Nepal, of local musicians from India and Nepal who served in the British Army for many years and some of them became bagpipe musicians. So bagpipes are an uh, important part of the uh, music, the local music in this area. But of course, local music also includes uh, local native instruments that have been here for a lot longer than the bagpipes, such as this one-string fiddle. And you can see the big curving bow here that, he, that he's playing it with, and other kinds of instruments. A fiddle with a coconut shell soundbox and one string that he's playing on. This is called Ting Tela, and we'll hear it in our CD6 example one. Ting Tela is played by a number of different ethnic groups that take part in this festival. look a little like Indian people to the west and south of them, and they also look a little bit like Southeast Asian people. There has, in fact, been mixing of ethnic groups in this area for many centuries, and so you find people who look a little different and who dance a little differently and perform music a little differently. Some of the people in this area are members of indigenous ethnic groups who were here before Indian people migrated in from farther to the west centuries ago. These women belong to a a more localized ethnic group in this area. And they come here to the town where the festival is being held to trade 
and do business with the um, um, with the with the local people. This is an area that has had a lot of political unrest and um, uprisings over the years, and there's a strong military presence. Um, and it's only recently, in fact, that they started allowing tourism. Now, who are the guys in the grass skirts there with the bows and arrows? Well, these are people called Naga, N-A-G-A, and they're local farming people, people with a tribal form of organization, living in villages, and they're especially famous for having continued their traditional warfare, which involves headhunting, through much of the 20th century. There's a picture on your handout of a Naga man in front of a, a, a skull house. This is a house where Naga warriors would come back from successful headhunting expeditions and store the heads of their enemies as trophies, hang them on the wall, and this would be a center of ceremonial activity and a center of organization for warfare. And let's pause there, because we're not ready to go on to Northwest India yet. Nagas are famous not only for their head hunting, but also for their music. And let's hear some of their music. This is a Naga song from Northwest India. It used to be used as a headhunting victory song when a war party would come back to the village with, um, with heads to add to the trophy house. And um, these days it's used as a celebration song at festivals like the one you're seeing on the video. Example one. There's the Ting Taylor one string fiddle. And then a group of men start to sing.
closet there a minute. And let's think about what we were just hearing. The one man sings the call, and the group of people sing the response. The group that is responding are all of the people in the village, men, women, and children. What's different about that from the music of South Asia we've been hearing so far? In a community? Yeah. It involves a much larger group of people. Much larger group of people. How many people were involved in the Duggar Brothers' performance? Two. Uh, gee, well, let's, can I count to two um, for the two brothers? And then there was one drummer and one person playing a drone lute. Four people. For the Ram Narayan concert, there was, well, the one we saw in video had one person playing the sarangi, that was Ram Narayan, one person playing the tabla drums, and one, two people playing the tampura, the lute for the drone. So that was four people too. This performance has 50 to 100 people. So it's a much bigger performance, but what else can you say about it that is different? Now let me give you a hint. We've said several times that the classical music was the road music, music of the cities that you find on the road. The recordings of the Duggar brothers and Ram Narayan were recordings of music performed in cities. Cities in India can be very, very big. They can have many millions of people. Now what is different about this music where how many people are performing? Who are the performers? Is anyone awake today? Lots of rural people. Not just lots of rural people, but let me say this again. Everybody in the village, that means you and 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 you 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 down to the very last person. You all got that? You can get your minds around that, right? Everybody, everybody, everybody is performing. Was everybody in the city of Calcutta performing with the Duggar brothers? No. no, there were four people. Was everybody in the city of New Delhi performing with Ram Narayan? No, there were four people. Who was performing in general terms with those musicians that we've heard so far? Who were they, first of all? Who were the Duggar brothers? Professional musicians. And their professional colleagues like the drummers or their students playing the drone lute. Who are the people in the village? 
farmers, and some of them at least had hunters. And of course, had hunters, family members, and next of kin. Everybody, 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 everybody. This is a wide open music. This is a participatory music, or music. You could say in this community that it is universal participatory music, universally participatory, because everybody takes part. Everybody, 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 everybody. In other words, they're not Americans. Nobody says, I can't sing. I mean, there are societies that musically disenfranchise some of their members, but this is not one of them. The Nagas, whatever the merits or demerits of their method of making war on other people might have been, at least were not exclusivist. Rather, they were inclusivist in terms of music making. Everybody in the society not only could, but did participate in music making. To make music was part of being a Naga. To make music was part of being human. And this is something that around the world we tend to find much more in smaller scale societies, in rural societies, in villages and nomad camps than we do in the cities and in the highly developed civilizations that have developed a strong system of stratification and segregation of professionals versus non-professionals. There is music in India that only gets performed by professionals. There's music in China and Japan that only gets performed by professionals. And um, hey, there's a lot of walls between professionals and non-professionals here too, if you stop to look into it with your eyes open and see who makes music in America and who doesn't make music in America. There are a lot of people who don't. But here in this headhunter village in South Asia, in the foothills of the mountains, way off as far as you can get from the centers of civilization, you have these people who are almost the stereotype of a far side cartoon, primitive people, so different from us, so so caught in a lifestyle that you think that must be really savage, really the antithesis of everything that you find in civilized life until you listen to their music. And then when you listen to their music, what do you hear? You hear somebody singing, uh, let's see. Uh, 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 et cetera. 
melodies that go in different directions against each other. You have other people doing parallel melodies with this. Now, what do you call melodies that move in different directions, that move freely against each other? Do you remember the word for that? Now this kind of counterpoint is in fact pretty simple. It just involves a few notes in either directions. But then you have a call and response that goes on. And an answer back. And so you get yet another strand of melody in that solo voice, the call, and another strand of melody in the response by the chorus. And then if you listen closely to the chorus, you find that those men and women and children are singing in harmony with each other too. And so you have all of these voices interweaving and crossing over each other. Yes? If the whole village is participating, how do they determine who sings which part? That's a good question. You could ask them if we had any of them here. We did have a whole village of African pygmies show up here one year. And we were able to um, ask them about that and um, actually to uh, participate and try to sing along with them. And, um, and figure it out, which was a lot of fun. And what they told us was, well, we just do it, can't you? Well, um, of course, they knew that we could. We knew that we couldn't. Um, we all thought we would have to know something special. And um, actually, what we had to do and what they had to do was to live with it for a while to experience it, to listen to it, to sing along with it. At first, you can get a few notes, and you do some of the simple parts. Then as you get to hear more of it, you start tuning in to some of the other things that people are doing, and you start to sing along with it. That's how, that, that's, that's how they do it, basically. They, in all of those communities that have such complex multi-part music, in most cases, they do not go to school for years to study the theory. They do not take lessons from a professional musician because in a pygmy village, in a Naga headhunting village, etc., there are no professional musicians. There are not any people who teach you how to do this. But you get carried on your mother's back as a baby to the sessions where everybody does it. You get to sit on your father's knee while he's singing along with the other men, or you sit with your mother while she's singing. And you hear all of the parts all around you, and you learn when to breathe and when to join with the group that you're sitting with. 
It works. It really does. There was a lot of music around before schools of music were ever invented and before anybody ever thought of becoming a professional. At least that's pre pretty likely if you can think of a scenario in the early days of, of, of human evolution where you had schools of music and proficiency exams and reci recitals um, um, Etc. Well, I'd be interested to, to hear about it. But actually, in peop it, for people with whom music is a part of every everyday life, then if you're going to live your life, you also live with music. And you, you learn it by participation, by absorption in it. That's basically how the, how the Nagas learn. This is beautiful, rich, complex music. This is music that, if you want to think in historical terms, you don't have an equivalent of in European music until at least the late Renaissance with multi-part contrapuntal <coughs> music. There are so many voices going on in this music. And it is a very soothing and relaxing music. What do you expect a headhunting song? to sound like? Shouldn't it be noisy and blood-curdling? Something that scares you, that makes you want, want to run away? Well, there was one call, one, one uh, kind of a cry in the middle of all of this that may have been a little bit scary. Let's listen to the rest of it. The first European missionaries who came into this area 150 or so years ago were amazed at the Naga singing. And they wrote back and they said, this sounds like our church organs. It is so rich and so beautiful. Just listen to some more. That's a good final exam piece, I think, especially with an ending like that. Um, but I wonder if I said, how would you describe what they do at the end there? What would you say? I mean, that sort of inhaling vocalized gasp. <gasps> and then that descending shriek at the end. Now that sounds like a headhunting song, doesn't it? Except, you know what? I can play you a Naga lullaby that you sing to put a baby to sleep that has that same ending. 
Well, I think different babies around the world have different tastes, just like the adults. Um, now, just for contrast, let's jump all the way across to the western edge of the Indian subcontinent to Rajasthan. It's a totally different ecology there. As you see, desert country with camels, cattle and donkeys, people raise animals, and travel around from place to place to find enough food and water for them. There's a little farming at oases where water exists, like this well where people come and get some water for, for the families and their livestock. People in this part of India traditionally were mostly nomads raising animals and moving around from one place to another. Here's the well where everybody comes for their water. And many musicians in this area are also nomads, but they are musical nomads who travel around from one village or one camp to another and play music um, to get food and to, do, and to get an income from the other nomads. So we'll meet a couple of them here. Let's just take a quick forward. That was about nice. Those are grain storage buildings. Another camel. These musicians are from the Laga caste. They're playing the jazz harp. The jazz harp is possibly the, uh, pro the prototype of nomad instruments in that it's so small and lightweight that you can carry it anywhere with you. And it requires no appreciable expenditure of energy to carry around. Now think of that. Nomads are not going to carry a grand piano like this. There's just no way that you could afford the energy, the food energy, uh, to feed animals to haul it around in a wagon, let's say, from one place to another. That, that would be an incredibly wasteful expenditure. But the jaws harp, you can wear on a string around your neck or put it in a pocket and bring it out when you want to play something. sound the jaws art makes is one note. And that plays over and over and over again. It never changes. What do we call that? Drone. Yeah, drone. Okay. So where does the melody come from? The melody is an overtone of the drone from the <coughs> jaws art. Because when you play 
a note, you get not only the main tone, but you also get overtones. And what the players do is to change the shape of their mouth to focus on one overtone or another overtone so that they can change between them and get a melody that goes up and down. The overtones are higher pitched and softer than the main tone. But you can, if you listen to them and think about it, you can focus on different overtones. You can do the same thing with your voice. And get different soft, high-pitched notes that you could make a melody out of. And that's what these guys are doing. They're changing the shape inside their mouth to bring out one or another of those high-pitched notes and creating a musical melody. Another way that you can get this kind of double mileage out of one instrument is to have an instrument that creates more than more than one sound. And you see this flute here has a lot of finger holes. This one doesn't. This one plays a drone. This one plays a melody. It's a double flute and you get double the sound. You get two musical parts, the melody plus a drone out of the flute. And the flute is made of bamboo. It's very lightweight and it's easy to carry. No moving parts. It's hard to break. And so it also makes a good nomad's instrument. Now, I hope you are thinking, I know some of you, some of you have already um, have already figured this out, that this is like the classical music in that it has a melody and a drone, but it only takes one person to play the melody and the drone. Same thing with the jazz harp. It only takes one person to play the melody and the drone. So what do the Naga musicians get with their 50 to 100 musicians? Hey, they don't get a drone. Naga music didn't have a drone. It had counterpoint. All of the parts were moving and changing. Nobody was singing a note that stayed the same all the way through. And in that respect, the Naga music is a little bit more like music of Southeast Asia, where you had, remember, mouth organs that went melodies in different directions, independent melodies, a counterpoint kind of thing. In South Asia, it's much more common to have a melody plus a drone. Tomorrow, we're going to hear an even more unusual example of a nomad musician who is able to get extra musical mileage out of limited instrumental resources um, and will meet one of the world's great outlaw musicians of the 20th century. I'm sorry, not tomorrow, but um, Friday, of course. So we'll see you on Friday.